Hello and thanks for tuning in to Podcast on the Sky. This is actually five years since we started, so everyone, pat yourselves in the back. We survived through, even though so many other podcasts have died by now. This is actually episode 21, and for this episode, we are covering the movies The Last Valley and Berserk, The Egg of the King, The Golden Age Arc. The Last Valley is a virtually forgotten 1971 film set in the Thirty Years' War in Germany, which happened 1618 to 1648. It was a bloody conflict, theoretically, between Catholics and Protestants, but uh, it got really muddled near the middle. The movie is about a mercenary band forcing a peaceful village to host them over the winter and the religious and political conflict which ensues. And Berserk, The Egg of the King, is the first of three movies adapting the prequel story from the Berserk manga and anime. It's about an impossibly strong swordsman and his service with the mercenary captain striving for political power. And it's also really bloody. Anyway, I am Jesse. I'm Amber. I'm Tom. And I'm William. Okay, so uh, just to start it off, what I really observed while watching both of these movies was that, uh, I mean, obviously they're both about war, but the thing about it is that the audiences watching them, most of them have, most of the audience has no actual direct experience with war. Their biggest experience is with fictional depictions of it. So Last Valley, it kind of takes the tack of war sucks. It really is really horrible. And Berserk takes the position, yes, it does suck, but on the other hand, it also totally rules. And then, <laughs> and then it's like a guitars playing and that kind of thing. What do you all think? I would agree that Berserk says war sucks, but it also totally rules. And the point of it totally ruling is that it brings you glory if you're the winner. You know, like war is... I think of when Soska is fighting that big general with the trident who tells her that war is sacred. War is sacred. It's for, for men. You shouldn't be on the battlefield. You're sullying it. So I'm going to kill you now. It's like, it's what men do. They go to war to prove themselves and to show off their prowess. While in Last Valley, these guys, these mercenaries are not doing it for glory. They're specifically doing it for money. And they're going to go with whoever can pay them. You know, even if they, uh, if it could possibly bring them uh, their downfall, which it ultimately does. You know, so. I guess I would say two things also. I mean, very different properties. But what I think is sort of at, at the heart of them, in, in Berserk's case, is sort of interesting, right? Because, I mean, obviously worth sucking is both true and sort of a you know common war as hell common theme in media right but i think what berserk gets into right because so much of the the human story of berserk right is people searching for meaning and purpose in a world that does not seem to make sense in which there are not the sort of political aspects of the berserk world the different countries that are fighting it's all sort of irrelevant it's all in the background it's all incomprehensible to the people who are on the ground fighting which is very similar actually to the way that 30 years war is portrayed in the last valley 
And so what war provides for people like Gats or Griffith is a sense of meaning or a sense of community, like Casca, right? She finds a sense of community, a sense of belonging into this, this band of the Hawks, mercenary band. And that does sort of, it gets you into the psychology of, I think, why notions of honor surrounding war have persisted so long. Right. I mean, this is a completely segue, but, you know, I'm watching Babylon Berlin right now, which is set in the 1920s in Germany right after World War One. And one thing I really like about that show, both first and second seasons, is how it gets into the psychology of the German militarists and the former German soldiers who invested their whole identity and their own self-worth into this militarist idea. And so the defeat in World War One is like this personal humiliation, right? Because your entire purpose in life is directed into this form of victory and this form of community. And that form of victory and community is built on <laughs> killing other people and destroying other people's communities. But in a world that doesn't make sense, it's something, right? It's something. And this is why I think, you know, you see in a lot of cases, like after World War One, even after something that is so transparently awful and pointless, totally fruitless, like World War One was, you know, there was this nostalgia for it, right? The um, community of the trenches. And so it's like, again, it provides purpose and structure in a world that can seem structureless. And so even if it's awful, there is this sort of innate desire on some level to want that. So I think that's interesting. And then the other thing with the the Last Valley that I think is, does is really unique, right, is that most war movies, not all, there's kind of a subgenre of resistance and civilian-focused movies about World War II, but most war movies and most war literature, it's about soldiers, generals, statesmen, knights, divisions, tanks, all that stuff, right? But who dies the most in war? It's civilians. And so I think what Last Valley does really well and really unique is use this incomprehensible war, the Thirty Years' War, which is sort of notorious for being extremely confusing and muddled. And just getting you into the mentality of you are not a knight, you are not a brave soldier, you are not fighting for honor, you're just like a guy who just wants to like not get disemboweled and marry his girlfriend and raise his crops and just being trapped in this hellscape that makes no sense and wanting to just live another day. And that sort of civilian experience of war is severely underrepresented in literature because it doesn't have that honor component. But those people's lives and those people's deaths, of which there are more, usually don't get the same exposure. And so I like that element of it quite a bit. I feel like the differing positions in war is somewhat dictated by the respective genres of Berserk and The Last Valley. The Last Valley is a historical drama. It's not an action-adventure story. There's uh, some violence in it, but it's not the driving part of the, the narrative. So it's able to, you know, take some distance, say war is hell, and leave it at that. Whereas Berserk is an action story. It's a sword-swinging, blood-and-guts fantasy. While it's inspired by the same period of history, it is a little more of Conan the Barbarian in its DNA than anything The Last Valley is adjacent to. So even while it can be very negative about war, it has to embrace war as a fun activity or it doesn't really work as a story. If it's, it would just be boring people. Right. And I mean, I think there is probably a certain, you know, I'm not an expert on Berserk or even big men doing action stuff manga. It's like not my area of expertise, but there's a certain like lineage here, I feel like, to other stuff we watched, like Fist of the North Star, right? Where um, there's a certain component of like 
these are the greatest, the greatest warriors. And you're watching them on their journey. And there's like, there's just like a cool factor to like, oh my God, the strongest guy is going up against the other strongest guy. Holy shit, there's no way. And so there is, yeah, that genre element to it. Well, I do have to say that between the two, they did have kind of a common thread in the sense of, I think that war is a man's game. Like whether it's a, it's a muddled mess and all these men are hiding in a valley for the winter or, you know, and it's more of just like a, more of a survival story, if you will, or like a, a small window into one area that was affected by war, but also somewhat protected. Or it was the hack and slash of Berserk where we see in great detail what war is, you know, the bloodiness, the sacrifice and such. Like, I think both stories are very male stories, you know. Even the great friendships, I feel, were, and understandings, both in Last Valley between the teacher and Michael Caine, for instance, and of course Griffith and Guts, those two relationships had a respect between men and what men have to do to survive war and to also face war, you know? So I have to say, like, watching both, I just, I felt very much like I was watching a man's idea of what war is. Whether they were focusing on the war is hell aspect, like in Last Valley, or the war is glory aspect, I mean, mean, until, until demons, you know, uh, (laughs) aspect of Berserk. There's one big difference between a Last Valley and Berserk, which can also explain the rest of the differences, and it's when they were made. Last Valley is from 1971. The Berserk movie was released in 2012. I think the manga started in the 90s. Anyway, 1971. That is um, the height of the Vietnam War, wasn't it? The, uh, the director of Last Valley, James Clovell, he was an Australian who went to the U.S. to work in Hollywood. He was director, screenwriter, novelist. And I was can't remember where I read it, but there was a review of The Last Valley that was saying it was his way of grappling with the implications of the Vietnam War. Basically, I mean, if you look at the story of The Last Valley, it's about an innocent mountain village where their community is corrupted by the arrival of warfare, which, you know, kind of is like how the U.S. was seeing itself American society was being destroyed by the ills of the Vietnam War. That's a a good point, especially given how little truck the film places in ideology. You know, there's Catholics and there's Protestants, but there's both in the army, and they both commit atrocities, and they're both just as bad. This is an idea reiterated a couple of times, although we see less Protestants in the film than we do Catholics because it's a Catholic village. And this probably reflects, if we're reading it that way, a certain ambivalence about the uh, real difference between sa- the uh, government of South Vietnam and the government of North Vietnam. You know, the Whatever the North Vietnamese did, the United States did my lie, you know? So not necessarily a pro-North Vietnam position, but definitely not a, a pro-American position if one takes that reading. And there's a whole tradition of... I mean, the whole tradition of Cold War era literature using historical settings, whether it's um, you know early early American settlement or Thirty Years' War, or you know you can look at like, an analogous picture. Uh, when did 
Aguirre came out. It was the early 70s, right? Another film yeah, using... Yeah, 72, uh, I think. Yeah, 72, using religion as a sort of, um, you know, allegorical replacement for ideological differences, right? Because it kind of, you know, people in the 20th century and the 70s might still be very engaged in ideological questions, but people in the modern world don't think about religion in the same existential way that people in the 17th century did. And so it gives you that level of remove uh, about religious conflict, about ideological conflict, about imperialism. And you, you see that, again, in, in this film, in works like Aguirre by Herzog. Uh, and so there is this whole, and even, you know, a lot of the, even a lot of the more mainstream war films of that late 60s, early 70s era, um, you know, Anzio have a certain cynicism about, about war and its causes. I feel almost obliged to point out, however, at this particular point in time in history, there was a conflict where being Catholic or Protestant was taken very seriously in the 1970s, and that would be uh, in Northern Ireland, specifically. But of course, that would be quite distant to the concerns of anyone making this film, you know, Australians and so on, but I'm sure it probably crossed someone's mind at some point in this production, especially considering there's so many British actors, specifically, in this film. Although I don't think there's any Northern Irish actors. Yeah, they were drawing from all over Europe. But James Clavell, the director, he was atheist, and which I think you might have been able to guess from what the, the movie was like. You know, I found the the treatment of the sacred in The Last Valley really interesting because it, you know, d- dis- whether or not the director was making his own views obvious, I just thought that it was a really good representation of how the sacred is thrown aside when war happens. I loved it when the priest was going on about how the shrine kept their village safe and somebody said, I forget which mercenary said, other villages had shrines you know like they have already seen that no god has protected any other village the sacred is essentially that the sacred is i i think about the old phrase that there's no atheists in foxholes you know but from just reading on the historical atrocities that happen for war you get the sense that the sacred is it's completely beside the point in war, even in a war about or seemingly about the fight between how to properly and be a Christian. Like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how sacred you are. It doesn't matter how faithful you are. If war touches you, it will scar you. Even this valley has to suffer, though it doesn't suffer at all to the extent that other valleys do. Even this valley has to suffer for for war just a looming cloud over them that perhaps their safety won't be forever, you know. And I think an interesting thing is that the religion of the two main characters, Fogel and the captain, not in the sense of what they believe, because we do get a sense of how little either one believes in anything, but in a sense of what sides of the war they might have been on at some point, is something that's sort of clear contextually for the film, but it's not something the film ever dwells on directly. For example, Fogel is a graduate of Heidelberg, And that would imply that he is from a Protestant background. And this is further suggested by the fact he lost most of his family in the sack of Magdeburg, because that was an atrocity perpetrated by a Catholic army on a uh, Protestant town. And that would also incidentally align the captain as probably being Catholic at some point, and certainly in the employ of Catholic forces until, of course, at the end of the movie when he decides to throw in with the Protestants, as he had probably switched sides several times. So these things are there. You can read into them. 
And it also intensifies the idea that when Fogel jumps up and declares himself a Catholic, it makes the lie a little more obvious because not only does he not believe, he probably has never believed in Catholicism in any sense. He was raised in a, in a Protestant background, presumably. Part of this probably gets into why there's so... I mean, there are any number of reasons, but part of why there are so few movies and works of art about the Thirty Years' War. I mean, I can only think of a handful that I've ever seen or read before, with one prominent exception. And, you know, it is because the, the, the stakes of it, even among someone who was maybe would be considered a religious extremist or was engaged in a religious conflict in the contemporary period. The way we conceptualize of religious issues, even if you're very devout, is just very different from the way people thought about it in the 17th century. And the fact that as it goes along, it becomes even less clear of an ideological conflict and, you know, becomes the, you know, the prince of Heidelberg murdering everyone in the domain of the Duchy of Vuknacht because of, you know, some small princely dispute. It all just seems so fruitless, even by the standards of conflict, right? And particularly when we, again, do not have that existential characterization of what being a different denomination means. It's, you know, it's very hard, almost impossible to graft uh, like traditional heroic narrative onto this long, long conflict. And there's only really a handful of even historical figures of it who sort of have been molded into a traditional statesman figure like, you know, Gustavus Adolphus. But otherwise, in sort of popular history, this period is sort of a black hole. And I think part of that is because it, it defies your attempts to impose satisfying narratives onto it. Yeah, I was looking up this particular point because Wikipedia claimed that there hadn't been a single film about the war before The Last Valley, except for a Greta Garbo vehicle from the 1930s called Queen Christina. And that doesn't sound right because, you know, Germany is quite a successful film industry, but it is actually hard to find specifically even German filmed examples. Like there's a TV film from the 1970s about Wallenstein, which is based on the Schiller plays about Wallenstein. He's a famous general from the war. But other than that, you know, I'm looking at like German theater, like uh, one of Bertolt Brecht's best known plays is Mother Courage, which is set during the war, that kind of thing. So not really a lot of stuff in the sort of entertaining war phase that you would get with other conflicts. Right. I mean, obviously, the, I mentioned the one prominent exception, and that's The Three Musketeers, which is, of course, enormous and has been adapted innumerable times. Oh, yeah. But that's only adjacent to the war. That's not about it. You know, Cardinal Richelieu is a famous figure from the war, but it's almost more because of that book than because oh, of history. I did not even realize that was, like, adjacent to the Thirty Years' War until you just said it now. And I've read, like, both of the, the Dumas books. That's wild. <laughs> It even comes up very briefly in this film. Cardinal Richelieu is one of the very few historical figures who is mentioned by name in The Last Valley, near the end when they're talking about the war situation. And he only comes up just to confuse the issue, because, you know, if you're not really clear about the war, so they have a guy come in and say, okay, here's the Catholics and the Imperial side, and oh, by the way, here's the Protestants, and hopefully they'll be able to get support from Cardinal Richelieu. You know, like a literal member of the College of Cardinals is making sure to support the Protestants in the war. So, you know, if you don't have a good grasp of what the war is about, that's going to throw you a little bit. I think it's intentional that they introduce them that way. Yeah. I just, I mean, for historical context, if, you know, people are not aware, and <laughs> for which I wouldn't blame them, but this was like, you know, until kind of World War One, World War Two, this was by far the most horrific conflict in, you know, 
decades, centuries of European history. I mean, huge, huge, enormous sections of the German population were just wiped off the face of the earth because of, you know, atrocities and contemporaneous famine. Uh, the movie does a really good job in the first, like, 10 minutes of setting up this, you know, apocalyptic atmosphere where it's people are, villages are being burned down and there's plague or wiping out entire communities. And it, it was, it was this, like, really apocalyptic moment if you were in northern central Germany during that period. Absolutely. In fact, one thing I just want to say, because obviously there are many other wars in Germany after this, even if you look at one of the most dramatic wars between World War I and the Thirty Years' War in German history, which being the Napoleonic Wars, when almost the entirety of the German states were subjected to Napoleon Bonaparte, that was actually relatively bloodless for Germany in terms of casualties. There wasn't a lot of civilian casualties compared to other wars in German history. So, you know, they, they got off pretty well after this, relatively speaking, because this was just that bad. About depictions of the Thirty Years' War, I feel like I should point out that the movie The Last Valley is actually based on the novel The Fat Valley from 1959. It was a British novel, and it's almost impossible to find. I've like asked my library to find a copy for me like several weeks ago, and they still haven't answered me back. Like, I guess it's never that big, but for some reason they decided to adapt it, or James Clavell decided to adapt it for a movie. Is it just because there's no, there's nothing, especially to our, like you said before, our modern sensibilities don't really assign a baddie and a goodie? Because, I mean, there's tons of depictions of war that have gone down. I'm just, it's kind of wild because I, the first time I think I even learned about the 30 Years War was in my late 20s when I watched some ridiculous that anime, what's what's that anime where like all the characters have person, all of the countries have personalities? Um, oh, Hitalia. Yeah, thank you, Hitalia. And they had some little bitty dealio about the Thirties Years War, and I was like, well, that's one that I must have like they must have brushed over in history class, and so like I read up just briefly about it, and then I brushed up a little bit more after watching The Last Valley, and it's literally a conflict that was not in my general knowledge bank. And I don't, is it just, I mean, obviously, I'm sure that like people within Germany now probably learn more about it than, you know, kids in the US for history class. But the, the fact that there's just so little media about it when there are plenty of other wars that have been depicted, even wars of the past that have been depicted, you know, but this one just doesn't seem to, to catch people as a narrative. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, even it's, you know, because when the war finally ended, it's historically very significant. And if you, you know, if you go down a, a path about, you know, international relations and stuff like that, like the Treaty of Westphalia is extremely historically important because, I mean, I'm simplifying, but it established more or less what we think of today as like modern states. Like basically at the war, everyone sat down and we're like, wow, that was a big mistake. Let's not do that again. And so they, they sort of agreed more or less like, all right. Protestant states, Catholic states, like, they don't have the inherent right to overthrow each other just over religious disputes, because all of that just happened. Let's not do that, like, ever again. And so sovereignty, again, simplification, kind of comes from this war, but this is all, like, really arcane for a general audience. And so, you know, again, you have this, like, 30 years war, incredibly labyrinthian, people switch sides multiple times, and then it ends with everyone going, yeah, that was a mistake, okay. Yeah, like, it's hard to sell that against, like, you know, Shakespeare rousing speeches. Mm. Yeah, I think, for example, if you take the Hundred Years' War, one thing that's very clear about it in terms of drama is that there's some very good heroes 
that you can, and I use heroes in a narrative sense, that you can build a story around, like Shakespeare did with King Henry, and like so many have done with Joan of Arc. And of course, those are on other si- opposite sides of the war, and at different times in the war's history. But it's very easy to make a story where the English are the underdogs in the Battle of Agincourt, or the French are the underdogs more generally. And that's very easy to sympathize with, go along with, follow the battles, etc., etc. And one thing I want to say, though, about why this film was probably adapted, even though the book is so obscure, is that uh, James Clavell himself was a novelist. He wrote a lot of historical fiction, most notably, I think, I think he wrote Shogun. I'm just going to check that right. He did, he did. Yeah, he wrote Shogun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he wrote Shogun, which, you know, people might know as a TV miniseries as well. So he, he was very much part of that world. So that's probably why he knew the novel and wanted to adapt it, because he has, has this affinity for historical fiction which, you know, not everyone working in Hollywood would have in the way he did, and hence the somewhat unusual subject matter. Which I think really helps, because this, this is a film that does care in broad strokes about its story, about what it's trying to say about this war and setting. Okay, I one of you mentioned something about Berserk being loosely based on the Thirty Years' War. I feel like I knew that at some point when I decided on sticking these two together, but now I've completely forgotten it. What was it that Berserk was being based on exactly? Well, it's less specifically the war and more that the character of Guts was inspired by a Pacific person in the war. Specifically, Guts is inspired by Guts von Berlichinen, or Gottfried von Berlichinen, also known as Goats of the Iron Hand. And he was a particularly brutal military leader. He is famously claimed, you know, one one of his famous quotes, which is not an actual thing he ever said, was, he can kiss my ass. And yes, admittedly, all this is from the, the Wikipedia page. But he was a pretty brutal military figure, and he was the inspiration for Guts and Berserk. The, the Iron Hand, to elaborate, is he literally, I think he lost his, his hand, or it got maimed or injured or something, and so he had like an iron gauntlet, which is like, I mean, it's pretty metal. Also, I find, I looked, and there is a copy of his, he wrote an autobiography back in the 17th, or actually, he was a little earlier. He was in the German peasant war, not the uh, 30 years war, but in any case. Oh, my mistake, my mistake. It doesn't really matter. It's all incomprehensible to most people. Um, <laughs> But anyway, he wrote an autobiography of his many decades of doing mercenary adventures and getting into feuds and fights with everyone. It's $30 on Amazon. So I'm sure it's written in a very arcane language, but if you're interested in that quote of sign a niche historical subject, probably pretty interesting. Also, the uh, German poet and playwright Goethe wrote a pretty, in Germany, famous play about him. And Walter Scott did a translation, which you can get online, you know, for no money because Walter Scott is dead and he's not going to sue Project Gutenberg for throwing it up online if you're, you know, curious. I've not read it, so I can't speak to its quality, but, you know, that exists. So one thing that struck me as I was watching The Last Valley, actually from the beginning of The Last Valley, when the mercenaries are attacking that one that's in the village. So uh, I'm pretty sure... None of us here on this podcast have uh, ever served in any military force. So the only reference point I had for that mercenary raid was Dungeons and Dragons. When I was watching it, I was like, wow, this looks like an orc raid uh, in, <laughs> in Warcraft. Like uh, they were all dressed in fur and they were all killing all these peasants. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because the setting of Dungeons and Dragons is actually pretty close to, in very broad strokes, to the Thirty Years' War. There's no, barely any central authority. 
And it's just independent bands of heavily armed men crossing the countryside, doing whatever they want to the locals. Um, can I just bring up, like, just to take it away from the Thirty Years' War in general, but how worship of Satan comes up in both movies, surprisingly? <laughs> like, Yeah, that felt kind of anachronistic in Last Valley. I don't think it's anachronistic in Last Valley in the sense that we're not talking about Satanism in like Anton LaVey sense or the Church of Satan or anything like that. We're talking about a kind of folk sense of religion where people live in fear of the ideas of being satanic in some way. Like the word satanic in English was first used by the translation, the Catholic translation of the Bible, the Douai Rems, and it used it to refer to Lutheranism. So there was this great fear that someone else was satanic. And with that fear could come with the idea, the temptation of trying it out for yourself, which is what the film has. Like, if you think Satan is real, you might be willing to cut a deal with him for some reason. That's not like an unheard of. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm not like a scholar of this period, and I'm, I'm guessing, you know, many of the, the details of how it depicts that issue are extremely anachronistic. But it is drawing from a significant element of truth in the sense that, you know, um, like wish trials and, and um, that sort of hysterical fear, you know, we tend to associate with the Middle Ages in pop culture. But like the early modern period is when like witch trials and stuff like really blew up. And the Thirty Years' War was authentically, particularly in, in in Germany, was a huge epicenter of witch trials. And you can sort of understand why, right? Like, you're, the entire social structure is just, like, being obliterated. And, you know, people naturally want to find answers. And so it was actually a huge epicenter of that, whether it looks like it did in the movie, probably not. But it is drawing from a certain level of historical truth and that there was this real sort of rapid fear proliferating through Germany during this period about that. You know, that makes a lot of sense in the context of a book that I read about the Salem witch trials, which, of course, is America's most famous witch trials, given the hysteria. But I read this really fascinating book that essentially built the trials around the Indian Wars that were happening at the time and flashed back to other conflicts within Germany, within or not within, but that were going on that England participated in, like in the mid century, in the mid 1600s, that just made witch trials explode. And it, it just it did a really good job of weaving war into the catalyst of witch trials when communities break apart and you are reliant on, again, a godhead to keep you safe. The idea of someone breaking apart the community and and thus through worship of Satan and thus possibly bringing the doom of the armies upon you, you know, I might I'll look for the books for you guys if you're you're interested, but I find it fascinating that like war breeds more than just the obvious death and plunder and such. It breaks apart communities who are f afraid of the war and the plunder, just like in Lost Valley. Uh, right, and, and you see it, too, you know, uh, the 30 years where it manifests itself in religion, but, you know, if you look at, like, um, you know, the terror during the French Revolution, right, like, the most famous victims are the aristocracy, right, but, like, most of the people were actually not aristocrats who had fled, and people were responding to something very real, which was that literally every army in Europe was coming to, like, burn France to the ground, and many aristocrats really did flee the country and were like, we're going to come back and we're going to kill everybody who wronged us. And so people were freaking out, 
And they're like, oh, I need someone to blame. Oh, I bet my neighbor is the spy, you know. Um, and so you see it manifest itself in different ways based on the themes that are prevalent in, in that society at the time. It's kind of just fascinating to me how divorced Berserk is from any real political context. I mean, it's like deliberately anachronistic. It's covering, its setting is like covering everything from the high Middle Ages to like the 18th century France. They have trebuchets, they have cannons, and there's like the Palace of Versailles in there too. It's not like they don't know better, it's that they don't really care. It's all just this one, like this giant mishmash of Europeanness. Oh God, I actually, I do have to say that there was what, I appreciated the mashing together, but I do admit that every time they had like a ball or whatever, it drove me fucking crazy that all the men were wearing these 17th century clothes and all the women were wearing like mid- late medieval. <laughs> yeah, late medieval, mid early Renaissance clothes. It was like, it, it just, the two styles together just would not mesh in my head. And I know that's such a that's such a petty thing to like look at and go, ah, why are you wearing a snood? <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, that's what that to me as well. And I was like, ah, it's fantasy, I guess, whatever, fine. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, that would bug me a lot if it was a historical drama. But, you know, this is about the war between Midland and the Tudor Empire. You know, those aren't real places. Yeah. It's all fake. You know? Yeah, and then the you know the demons come in, but not in. Oh, oh actually, wait, that was in the later movies. The one guy was a vampire, I think. Nosferatu Zod. Yeah, well, we got we got some demons in this one, though, don't we? Uh, yeah, in the first demons. one. In the first yeah. one, I watched uh, all three actually. Oh, but, yeah, I, um, yeah, yeah. Did we all watch all three? I'm, I'm not sure on that. I mean, I all watched all three, but yeah. you know, I've seen all the berserk anime. Uh, and if you watch there's... all three, you get some demons. Okay, yeah, sorry to spoil it. Series. Okay, you know what? Yeah. I think we all watched all three guys, so I think we can talk about all three, which is great. Cause... Yeah, yeah. I, I was not aware that was even a debate, and it's good that we clarify that because I think the ending of this particular arc is, is well worth talking about. Oh, boy, yeah. And here's, here's an idea I want to throw at you. You know, Last Valley, I kept watching it with kind of like a pit in my stomach because I was sure that this unlikely place, this last untouched part of Germany, was going to get destroyed because the war is still ongoing. The war could drag it in at any moment. That doesn't happen in the movie. The worst is uh, avoided. But in Berserk, the worst possible thing that you could think happen happens. Yes. It happens all over the cast. But, of course, it's a little different there because they are all soldiers. There's no civilians in play in that kind of brutal ending. But it is a really brutal ending. I mean, the ending does imply that Griffith essentially is the catalyst that begins a time of horror that is about to be unleashed upon the world. So, like, you know. But that's like, that's the future, you know. He's going to, like, be a horrible thing to civilians in the future, absolutely. But, like, not, like, immediately. But well, go on. Uh, I would say that the uh, both both generals of both mercenary groups essentially lead their followers to their doom. And I feel like there's a cloud over both the valley and the entire world in both properties because the war is yet, is just beginning, really, for both, you know, like you really do get the sense at the last uh, in the last valley that it's truly a matter of time before the valley is found by more people you know it's been lucky but now even this this mercenary who for the most part 
was benevolent, you know, in his takeover of the valley. Next mercenary crew, next, you know, unit of soldiers will not be so benevolent. So I think that I think that the worst is yet to come what with the slaughter of the mercenary groups, you know, is solid for both. Well, the, the valley arms themselves and they start graining themselves. But, you know, it's a valley. There's like, what, 100 people there? Like the next army that comes by is just going to kill them all. I've played Mountain Blade. I know it's not going to work. Yeah. But yeah. I, I'm glad I wasn't the first person to say that because, you know, Jesse compared this to Dungeons & Dragons, but I was definitely thinking of Mountain Blade a lot, which uh, as a game, in terms of its army management and the importance of keeping them fed, is definitely something that I thought about in terms of how the captain negotiates with the villagers. And, you know, obviously in that game, you can play nice to the villagers or you can just burn a place down and like take all their food. It's a much simpler solution. Right. And I mean, in armies, armies during this period, I mean, wide mixture of troops, kind of a transitional period, but by and large, like you weren't, you know, you're not like getting paid the way like modern soldiers do. And so like, if you got to eat, you were them. And a lot of the, a lot of the atrocities during this period are, are because of that. It's like your soldiers, if you want them to fight, they need to eat. And since you don't have any food to give them, say, hey, there's a village, you do what you will. I think an interesting thing about both of these pieces is that they value a certain amount of not just cynicism, but intelligence. It's repeatedly observed that Fogel is smart, and the captain is also smart. He's brutal, but he knows exactly what the world is, how to get his results, what kind of things he can and should do to achieve his goals. And Griffith is very much the same way. Very goal-oriented fellow. I think we can all agree there. He, he knows if he wants guts, he knows how to seduce guts into his company. If he wants, you know, to go complete bonkers with evil devil power, he knows how to do that too. This is, it's all about these people who are generally quite smart and generally looking for the best outcome for them. But what that is, you know, varies and it can also be a very unfortunate outcome for someone else. Right. I mean, the, the captain and Griffith sort of have posing arcs. I mean, they're very different characters in most ways, but they do have a sort of that goal-oriented mindset you talked about, and they start in a somewhat similar psychological place. But whereas the captain sort of reclaims a certain amount of humanity uh, at the end of Last Valley, Griffith goes right in the opposite direction. He has humanity and expends it because he's this sort of Nietzschean Superman figure, and the fulfillment of his goal and the, the maintenance of the human parts of his character are not necessarily compatible, and so he has to destroy one or the other. And after everything that's happened to him, he chooses to destroy the human side, right? And go for the, the true sort of apotheosis of cruelty. Well, the uh, big difference between Griffith and the captain is Griffith, he has a goal. He's climbing the social ladder at the very least, getting promoted in, into the royal court and so on. Whereas the captain, I'm not sure he even has um, any long-term plans. He's just going from place to place. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to kill for this guy because he's paying me. But then I'm going to start killing for that other guy because he's paying me. And he's basically a nihilist. He doesn't really believe in anything anymore. He just goes wherever. Well, okay, so I found Griffith as a character really fascinating overall like okay so i watched the first movie and i was not terribly drawn in and then you know i had the time so i was like okay i'll go for the next and the second movie just was so much better about setting up griffith's goals setting up that guts is the one guy who's basically keeping him grounded you know 
And I, I really loved the sex scene at the end with the princess because the only reason he did that was, I think, self-destruction. I think he knew that it was, it was not, like, he had been so careful in his maneuvers, you know, before that. And yet, and then he, like, threw it all away as soon as Guts left. And finally, his choice to give up his, the entirety. I found it really fascinating that he was the kind of man who had a group of people who were so loyal to him, to their own detriment. And he literally gave them all up for this, this dream that he had since he was a child to reach, like, these heights, you know. I want to ask why you think, why you guys think he, he made that choice. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd say, you know, I, I called him Nietzsche earlier and his relationship with Guts, because him and Guts are both, I'm being very pretentious right now in a very classical freshman student way, but both him and Guts are kind of Nietzsche figures, right? And the reason he respects Guts and potentially conceptualizes him as a friend, right? He says, none of my troops are my friends. I don't consider them any of them their friends because they don't have that goal-oriented mindset that Guts does, right? He has a dream, and he wants, he sees the potential for Guts to have his own dream, and that's sort of like the, again, you, the, the Nietzschean Superman idea, right? Like, you impose your will on the world, you have a dream, a, an objective, which you pursue to the ends of the earth, whether you succeed or fail, and you will do just about anything to get there, right? And that is like the kind of psychological, spiritual apotheosis of a man, of a person who achieves, bring, who bends the world to their own will and has a purpose. They're not floating through life. And that's what he sees in Guts. And they both try and reach the, the top levels, right? This is why Guts leaves. He doesn't want to be an appendage to Griffith. But the problem with sort of that mentality, that Nietzsche mentality, and the problem with Griffith, right, is that there's, there is actually a relatability, right? He's a sort of a tragic figure. He turns into a villain. But he doesn't start as one necessarily, although other people have plans for him. But he creates this distance from everyone around him. He has humanity. He has empathy. But he pushes it aside in pursuit of his goal. And the problem with, you know, the, you can't live that way, right? You're a human being. You will ine inevitably develop attachments to people. You will inevitably have personal weaknesses and, and be uncertain and all these things. And he respects Guts, and Guts sort of gets into his head and is someone he actually cares about as a human being. You know, and so when Guts leaves, he can't even, like, conceptualize that. Like, it just totally destroys him because he's spent his entire life telling himself that he doesn't care about anything but his goal, and he suddenly realizes that he does, and he can't take it. And he's, he's seeing this weakness in himself. And like you said, self-destruction, right? He just, like, totally can't psychologically handle the idea that he's attached to a human in this way. You know, until you mentioned how he says none of his soldiers are his friends, I didn't realize how close the relationship between Guts and Griffith is to the relationship between Vogel and the captain, because the captain also keeps his own soldiers at a distance. He says in The Last Valley that he doesn't trust any of them. And yet, at the same time, there's kind of a, a burgundying, not quite friendship between him and Vogel. They complement each other. They understand each other a little bit more than they're understood by others. And this kind of close relationship defines both stories between two men. Not quite sexual in the case of The Last Valley. I think a little more sexual energy 
in Berserk, or anyway, that's my reading of it. Oh yeah, I read that. People, Absolutely. people can <laughs> yell at us now, you know, but but I definitely think that there's a little something going on there, Gus and Griffith. That's uh, it's romantic. I think you can also probably read that into Last Valley if you want, but I think it's 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 clearer in Berserk. Yes, I also agree about the whole vibe going on between Guts and Griffith. But uh, let's let's pull back a little bit and. There was uh, something that we were talking about before we started recording, which was how hard it was to find <laughs> a copy of The Last Valley. Like, it's on YouTube. The, the quality is terrible. I myself only knew it existed because it was on History Channel at one point. Uh, I think my brother recorded it for me or something. And it's, like I mentioned in the beginning, it's a forgotten film because it was actually a commercial disaster. It did really badly when it was released. I think probably because, not because it's anti-war, because, again, this was during the Vietnam War. There were lots of anti-war films. But from the way it looked, the way it was advertised, it looked like like a 17th century Spartacus or something. It's just another historical epic. And, you know, people weren't really into that kind of thing in 1971. Which is really too bad, because it's, uh, it's, I really like this movie, and I really wish there was like a some kind of high-definition version of it out there, a remastered version. Yeah, one thing I was also saying before we set recording is that I have a copy of an Omar Sharif film from before Lawrence of Arabia, one of the films he did back in Egyptian cinema. Specifically, for the record, There is a Man in Our House, or, and I'm probably butchering the pronunciation here, Fi Bettinia Rajul from 1961. And this particular Omar Sharif vehicle is in much better quality you know, this relatively obscure Egyptian film. I have it in much better quality than I can get this big-budget British picture from the early 1970s, which has Michael Caine. I mean, Michael Caine and Omar Sharif, Zulu and Dr. Zhivago's stars, respectively, in in this movie. The the big historical epic guys together in a big historical epic movie. And the best possible version of this film I could find had awful quality, riddled with anti-aliasing. You could barely read the credits. It was just, you know, quite frankly, if I didn't have to watch it for this recording, I simply would not have watched it. I would have gone and watched another film, which I could get at better quality, like the aforesaid Omar Sharif film. But having watched it for this recording, I'm very glad that I did, because while it is impossible to find this film, impossible in my experience to find this film in good quality, it is nonetheless a very good film. And I think it's very unfortunate that such an interesting film is both so difficult to acquire and not possible to acquire in tolerable quality. Like, I'm not talking that we need like 1080p Blu-ray quality, but just half-decent DVD look, for the love of God, would have really gone a long way here. No, it's weird that you can't even find it like on a cheap-ass VHS on eBay or something. It's wild. I think there's some DVDs out there on Amazon. I don't really know how good they are. I Yeah, I looked. There was like... Uh, They're not good. I, I was, when I first started watching the 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 10-part YouTube video, I was like, mm, maybe I'll just order it. And there was, I think it was like one new and like a handful of used old DVDs in stock. Who knows what the quality is in a VHS tape? Like... You know, not great for a movie that, again, like, like everyone else said, is quite good and, you know, astute and accomplished and, and intelligent and all that. The, uh, the production company actually went out of business. Actually, um, this, was, this was their first film, and they threw everything into it. Like, it was filmed in Austria, and they like, look at it. They built, like, an actual mountain village. And, yeah, the movie failed. 
the production company, they were like, okay, forget movies. We're just going to stick to our core business, which I forget what it was, but totally not movies. And I guess that's it. It was like orphan, orphan intellectual property. Oh, interesting. It's a shame because, you know, you think movie produced by a company that immediately shuttered, you know, what else qualifies for that? Nosferatu. You know, in ter- that film was a disaster in terms of its release. It was sued by Bram Stoker's widow because it was very obviously a ripoff of Dracula. And the conclusion of the court was that the film, all copies of the film should be burned. And it was also, you know, it put the company that made it, their first film, immediately out of business, Pranafilm. And it is a miracle that Nosferatu is available today. But not only is Nosferatu available today, you can get it in excellent quality, and you can get it pretty much anywhere. Because as far as silent films go, it's one of the best-known silent films. Nosferatu is very much an abnormality in film history. A film that gets discarded is much more likely to either be lost forever, as is the case for most silent films, like 80% of silent films in total, or at best available in these these kind of poor qualities like Glass Valley. There's so many films, notable films like this, which you cannot get for love or money in a tolerable quality. And I think at this time when it looks like everything's at our fingertips, it's streaming and all these obscure titles you can get on different services, we could be doing a lot better. We could be preserving uh, our media history a lot better than we are. I'm really intrigued that nobody who's into like more nihilistic 70s film didn't pick up the last valley as something to distribute or attempt to distribute you know like or come up with a a means of saving it because it's not at all a bad film it is quite a good film you know and and you know it's it's really kind of like that beginning of that beginning of the dirty 70s movie is how i see it in my mind where there's no good there's no bad it's really post haze code stuff so you can actually show things like people negotiating Negotiating women who will become, you know, comfort women for the for the mercenaries, you know, portrayals of of attempted rape and such. And it's like on that cusp of of the 70s grime, you know, uh, think piece movies. And I I. I'm surprised. And, and, and again, like Omar Sharif and uh, Michael Caine and nobody has, you know, picked up the, the orphan. Uh, interesting. I would say that I think on one hand, it's perhaps a little classy for that kind of area because, you know, it, it does get into some dark area, but it, it keeps itself a little above. It's, there's not a lot of explicit gore. It's not a Sam Peckinpah film or something. It's, it's a little closer to something like Zulu or Zhivago, which is why I use those examples, I mean, in my opinion anyway. But I think it's also because, you know, while this is an orphan film, probably a film that's still owned by a big company. Like, I'm not 100% clear here, but on the one hand, the production company was a little company called ABC, which I'm sure everyone knows. But also, the uh, one home video release was by MGM. So, for all I know, MGM still has the rights to this. And MGM is, you know, a pretty big library. That's interesting because very recently in the news, Apple and Netflix have been fighting over the MGM library for their streaming site. So for all I know, by the time we finally release this, one or the other may have acquired the MGM library. And that library may or may not include The Last Valley. So you may or may not be able to watch it in good quality on a streaming service when when this goes live. And if that is the case, please note that it takes a while for us to record these things. And if it is the case, by the way, you can see that I'm clearly a genius because I saw this in advance. You know, just respect my great intelligence of reading <laughs> articles, making guesses. Well, yo, if, if Netflix gets it, they'll put literally everything in a catalog online. So crossing fingers. <laughs> Apple would too, but nobody has Apple. <laughs> 
So <laughs> if it gets on Netflix, I think people might actually see this. Although, you know, I personally have Apple. I'm just going to say that. But I only have it for, like, For All Mankind, the TV series they have. They have no catalog at all, and I don't much care for an absence of catalog titles. Uh, yeah, actually, I've, in my experience, like, Amazon has more old movies than Netflix. Like, actual classics, like, you know, Starship Groupers or whatever. And, like, good luck finding that on Netflix. Like, um, something like 20 years old that, you know, it's not even that obscure, but absolutely not there. Well, I found it interesting that you couldn't even rent it off of Amazon, which is pretty rare, like, that they don't have at least an ability to purchase it, you know, even if purchase it for streaming, I mean, even if you it's not part of their prime catalog, you know? Yeah, um, we don't really have that option in Ireland. Like you can't actually rent anything in Amazon in Ireland because uh the streaming service is separate from the store because we don't have a, a dedicated Irish store. We just get stuff from Amazon UK. Also their back catalog here, I wouldn't say it's got more it may have more classic films than Netflix, but that's because Netflix has very few classic films at all. But what it does have, and I really respect it for it, is real bargain bin quality. There's a lot of films that you would probably find, you know, at a bargain bin at a store, which are so, for some inexplicable reason on streaming. A lot of random obscure crap, which I really, really like about that service because, you know, it, it's variety. I would say in general, most streaming services are very poor when it comes to Older films, older TV shows, very thin on the ground. And I do make that, that does make me wonder about history in terms of preserving it. And this is also true for film stores, certainly in Ireland. If you go to a digital film store, your options for films past a certain point will very often be very thin. We only have very few dedicated old film streaming services, just MUBI, pretty much. MUBI and maybe uh, the BFI player, that's about it in Ireland. Like all the great ones here about the United States, like the Criterion channel and so on we've never had those and I'm, I'm very very angry and jealous about that to be honest well uh we've kind of moved pretty far afield from the last valley and berserk unless anyone had one final thought they wanted to share okay i have one but it's kind of a bummer and it's it's about rape and both properties use it and berserk in particular to great uh, okay so again I see both of these stories as the idea of a man's idea of war, you know, a man's idea of honor, a man's idea of friendship, a man's idea. And, and of course, I don't mean individual man's. I, I mean, like a, a societal male view of these things. So in The Last Valley, you do have there are a couple of female characters who are pretty strong, particularly uh, what's her name? The Erica. The, Erica. Thank you. Particularly Erica, who chooses the captain rather than is chosen by, you know. But they they straight up say that the mercenaries need women to keep them settled and satisfied. And so a grouping of women are going to have to sacrifice their bodies. And they're given absolution by the priest so that they won't go to hell. This is something that they consider so sacred that they need the priest to absolve them of the quote-unquote sin of being raped. You know, so you've got rape in the sense of what women go through in war, especially when war comes to a village, women are going to be raped. That is just the known. That is the violence that they ex they are expected to experience probably before they are then killed, you know. 
And then you've got Berserk, where there is a very gratuitous rape scene at the end of the last movie that literally breaks the mind of the character because it's a man who Griffith rapes her and she has looked up to him and wanted to be his woman for a long time until she and Guts fell in love and risked her life for him. And then he rapes her, taking on the visage of his better self, if you will, in front of Guts. And the thing about that scene, too, is it's not really so much about her. It's about Guts having to watch it. And so in both contexts, and I I admit that I got very angry at Last Valley makes sense. It came out in the 70s. It's true to form that in the 30 Years War, of course, and many other wars, women being becoming rape victims is simply unknown. It's not seen as something that is breaking the women, but seen as more of a sense of like, this is what happens during a war. Berserk, however, is a property that first came out in the 90s and then came out, you know, this new iteration was 2012. And I admittedly got very, very angry at how gratuitous it was because it was clearly gratuitous because, you know, it was trying to push the envelope, just like with the violence. Right. And the fact that the fact that you get some of her viewpoint just to see how he's fucking with her mind, because it's also a mental rape, but it's not really her story and it's not really her her trauma. It's Guts's trauma. It's Guts getting to, you know, Guts is, Guts is the one that we're focused on. And Guts is the one who ultimately the sympathy goes to because her mind is broken at the end. And Guts is the one who has to realize that she's lost herself, you know. And I admit that when it comes to rape tropes in media, the fact that you've got a strong female character who was brought down by rape to the point of breaking her mind and we didn't even get to see her talk about it or survive it on her own terms. It felt like such a kind of a slap in the face when there were no other female characters that you could really look to as an audience in for a woman who is appreciating this anime. And I just felt that it was a, it was a big misstep, you know, whether it was directly from the original manga series or not, which I assume it was just from when I was like reading up on the old version the old series. I've not read the manga, but the same plot plays out in the first anime adaptation. So I'd have to assume it's from the manga. Yeah, I assume so. It is. It's fairly famous slash infamous. Yeah. Uh, then I... Yeah. I figured it was part of the old series. I mean, like, and, you know, the 90s were 20 years ago now, but uh, 25 years ago for this series. But I just, it's like one of those times where I, I desperately hate rape tropes in media. I hate that she was used essentially as as a means to get one over on the main male character. You know, her tr- her trauma is not from her perspective. Her trauma is for the benefit of the male character. And so I just, I wanted to throw that out there for anybody who hasn't seen Berserk yet, you know, understand that it really did, like, it. I had to fast forward through most of it because it was, it was truly a horrifying scene for me. <laughs> so, um... 
Yeah. Like, and, and as somebody who really, I really enjoy adventure stories. I enjoy sci-fi. I enjoy fantasy. And up until a good, like, say 20 years ago or so, 30 years ago or so, if, if, you know, like at the beginnings or, you know, bits and pieces through the sixties and seventies with female writers, but the male perspective of these kind of stories were the only perspective. So, you know, you can, I can take a lot of this kind of stuff because I feel like I don't feel like men write these things to as as a means of like putting one over on women or anything like that. I don't think that's the case. I think it's just more of a sense of because there was a lack of women's stories and women's perspectives. How could any guy who was trying to write a story understand what a woman's perspective would be on this? And the fact that this in this particular story, the woman doesn't e- doesn't even get a chance to explain her trauma because her mind is taken from her. It just felt like it felt like a lot, you know, <laughs> and I can usually look past a lot of things. But that that really got to me. It really got to me. And honestly, I'm probably going to watch the entire series purely to discover what happens to that character. I want to know what happens within the narrative, not not just with a, a wiki check. You know what I mean? I want to know what happens to her because I want to see if the if the show gives her absolution. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I just want to note is that quite a bit happens to her, but I would uh, add the proviso that the follow-up TV series has some, shall we say, less than ideal animation. I quite liked it, but it was something of a punching bag as an adaptation a couple of years back when it was airing. So yeah, the whole rape thing was kind of why I suggested just watching the first movie, because it was really friggin' horrifying, and I haven't rewatched the third movie since the first time I watched it, like several years ago. I was like, okay, I really don't want to watch that scene again. I'm just gonna skip that last movie. And <laughs> and uh, yeah, I still completely remember it, and, and it was still friggin' off-putting just remembering it. And I really do not want <laughs> did not want to watch it again. But I guess that was it as far as our thoughts in the movies, right? <laughs> I think so. Sorry to end it on such a downer note. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's important I mean, if, uh, yeah. to say, so I'm glad that you know someone said it. And I'm sorry, Amber, that it's, it's always you who has to bring this up, but it's good that someone did. Well, you know how it is. It's like, again, it's kind of a woman in the fridge kind of moment, you know, where and it, and I'm just kind of keyed into that kind of stuff, especially now that we're starting to really, I think in the last 10 years in, in particular, we have really started seeing properties from all sorts of different media where women are in charge of their own stories, you know, and we've really gotten some good stuff out of it. And diversifying the idea of whose stories are good to tell, you know? So, you know, like when you see kind of a throwback based on a show and a manga that came out earlier in our collective media history, it is kind of jarring because I I feel that if they weren't so... You know, if they if they weren't following the original story so closely, I feel like if they might have done it a different way. But... Again, you know, it's it's just one of those things that I, I sometimes notice. The rapes, you know, I notice the rapes. <laughs> well, you know, I, this is one of those things where I think this the adaptation have been improved if they've been less faithful to the original. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, I, I guess we've reached that point in the 
podcast where we ask the same question we always ask. Would you uh, recommend these properties? I mean, for me, uh, I think it's obvious since I'm the one who recommended The Last Valley that I really think it's a great movie, even despite the terrible quality of what's available out there. And hopefully, fingers crossed, that whole MGM deal gets done and something with even uh, 90s quality DVD level uh, is actually released for The Last Valley. And, you know, there's Omar Sharif, there's Michael Caine doing a weird German accent, and it's a period of history that's barely covered at all in fiction. Not just in movies, but books, TV shows, whatever. So that is a complete recommendation from me. For Berserk, it's kind of fun, the first couple of movies. I mean, it is very masculine-oriented, very macho. But for the first couple of movies, you were like, if you're used to watching media from a... If you've watched a lot of media to this point, this is really not anything that you haven't seen before for the first two movies. It's a bunch of guys killing each other, being all bros and masculine with each other, and slightly homoerotic, and, you know, that's what happens. The third movie, by... The ending, like Amber was saying, it was so, so friggin' off-putting that I can't really recommend it. So uh, I guess it's kind of a wash. Berserk, uh, the, oh, uh, actually, I forgot to mention this. Uh, the fencing was nice, like uh, the swordplay. They had an actual uh, fencing consultant on it. The, uh, the part where Guts assassinates the king's brother or something, like when he's surrounded by these guards, he's used, using actual like medieval fencing techniques. It, it was really neat, actually. But, you know, that's not going to make a movie great when it has uh, such an awful ending. But that is at least one neat part about it. So Berserk is a, yeah, so-so on that end. It's a wash. Uh, What about everyone else? Um, Okay, so Last Valley I would definitely recommend. And even just go watch it on YouTube. I know that the quality is crap, but you'll probably be like, all these sweeping vistas, I wish I could see it in HD, you know, like, because that's exactly how I was. It is a quiet war movie, which is, I don't think I've ever seen before, you know, a movie about war, where the war is barely even there. And the effects of war, though, are heavy. And I I really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed everyone who was in it. Even Michael Caine's attempt at a German accent was pretty all right. So I would definitely recommend Last Valley. Um, the Berserk movies, these new guys, I don't know, man. Uh, like like Jesse said, the first two were pretty... Uh, the, okay, the first one was actually kind of boring to me because it felt like I have seen this kind of movie like a million times. You know, like a bunch of comrades, a bunch of war buddies going to war, doing more things. Until like the end and then there's a demon and you're like, where where the fuck did this demon come from? The second movie was War and Intrigue, which I fully enjoy and I actually really liked the second movie. And it had a lot of good emotional moments. The third movie is so dark and nihilistic. It is rough. That last 30 minutes in particular, it is it is wholesale slaughter. Like, you know, when we did Fist of the North Star, there were times where I had to go like, oh, and hide my eyes. This one was probably one, even Golden Kamoy, which had people's faces being ripped off. The gratuity of the violence in this is is hard. And the rape scene, too. I mean, the rape scene 
on top of that, which was really rough. It did, however, make me intrigued about the original 90s series, though. I'm not too keen on cel-shaded anime because it kind of fucks with my eyes, but I might go ahead and just watch the 90s series just to see how everything turns out for these guys, because I am kind of curious about what happens to Guts and uh, Koska, but... I don't know if I would necessarily recommend the first movie, and I don't think I would at all recommend the third, except to watch the full arc of the story. If you are that caught up in the narrative, maybe, but that is like the only reason I would recommend it. Oh, and and for the animation during Griffith's transformation, that animation was actually really, really, really good. Very trippy, very wild, kind of grotesque, really, really cool. And that's it. <laughs> yeah, I guess I would say, I mean, similar to everyone else, I think, you know, The Last Valley is a very, you know, it's, it's a sophisticated film. You know, it has has a series of ideas that it wants to explore in a very unique setting of history with these characters who have different perspectives on the world and how they navigate around each other. You have this central location that's in this village, and there are different sort of leader figures all competing for the for the heart of the character with this looming conflict all in the background. And it makes for a very compelling drama. And if you're interested in the time period in particular, but just in general, I think as as a very well done historical piece of fiction, it's absolutely worth seeking out. And it's unfortunate that it's not more widely known or available. For Berserk, uh, I guess I would say, you know, I I have slightly higher maybe opinion of the films, but because I think that the core narrative here, the core characters, the core dynamics between the characters are very compelling, right? There's a, a reason this series blew up uh, and is very famous, and it is because the core narrative is very strong and it has a lot of iconic imagery uh, and great action sequences, right? If you're okay with ultraviolence, then then there's some stuff in this that's really badass. But it does have, you know, because I don't necessarily like super nihilistic edgy material all the time i think it can be kind of facile but there is an undercurrent of actual humanity in this and thoughtfulness that i think distinguishes it from a lot of other properties the films themselves you know they're they do the business my main problem with them in a lot of ways was the sort of pacing and this is something you find really commonly with kind of compilation films of long-running manga or tv series which is that particularly in the first film there are a lot of scenes where you can tell these are moments that people care about and remember from the manga, but also that there's a ton of stuff in between that would flesh out each of those developments a lot more, and you're just sort of getting the Cliff Notes version. And that does hurt the narrative a little bit. And, you know, the, the action sequences, the CGI looks okay. It kind of comes and goes. It has some really standout moments when there's a lot of movement, but... It, it can look very um, static at certain times. I mean, who knew what was to come in the 2016 series, but it's sufficient, but not spectacular. As for the third movie, you know, I think the thing with the third movie is, right, if with all the caveats we put on, which are important, because I think a lot of people will reasonably find a lot of the content in that final movie to be very off-putting. And it is deliberately off-putting, right? It, it wants to, like, make you feel like shit, and it goes a long way towards making that happen. But it also, I think, does actually have some of the strongest imagery of any of the three movies, like the crescendos of the drama in the third movie are really good. So it kind of has some of the strongest and weakest 
components of any of the three films like you know this you know, a, a hand made of the skulls of the all the lives they've taken reaching towards the, the dark moon like there's some really great imagery in it but with the caveats that everyone else has already mentioned that do are off-putting for a lot of people so i i would say if you like medieval fantasy then i would definitely actually recommend seeking it out but you kind of have to know what you're getting going into it I guess my feeling is is that The Last Valley, it's very good, but I particularly recommend it to people who like historical dramas. You know, I've, a couple of times I've mentioned Dr. Zhivago and Zulu. And if you like, you know, dramas from the 1960s, not necessarily ones with a lot of action, because this doesn't have a lot of action, and of course the early 70s, but more of the 60s, because this is a 70s film, but it feels a little more at home in those kind of classic movies, which I think was probably why it did so poorly. Uh, I would do recommend it. And just in general, it's a very solid film. Great performances from Kane and uh, Sharif, who are fantastic actors. Really just a good time. So big recommendation for Last Valley. With Berserk, I generally really like Berserk as a franchise. I've uh, watched all the anime. I haven't read the manga, admittedly, which I know is what people will tell you to do. And the big question for me with the anime films, it hasn't really been addressed by the others, is whether or not it's better to watch the anime films or better to watch the 90s series because both of them actually cover the same arc the exact same arc they both end at the same moment and i think the films definitely have much better animation than the series because the series by the standards of 90s tv animation is a bit limited so there's a very low bar here and the films vault over it quite well but pacing i think is probably a little better than 90s series but if the animation quality matters more to you, I would say watch the Golden Arc films. But if pacing is a little more your style, watch the series. And I would say the series is of one major advantage, is that the whole score of the TV series is by Susumu Hirosawa. He does some music for the movies, which is very nice, but he did all the music, the incidental music, that is, not the opening or ending for the TV show. And that was great because if the name doesn't ring any bells, he did the music with uh, all the Satoshi Kon projects. So if you've ever seen Satoshi Kon anime, you've he- heard Susumu Hirasawa's music. It's very nice. It's very dramatic and unusual and synthy. So I do really like that he did some work for the Golden Age arc. But if music is particularly a selling point, I would go with the original TV series. Overall, Berserk is certainly justifiably controversial for the choices it makes. And particularly what it does to Casca has been a point of contention even before these uh, more recent anime films. I remember having arguments about that with women telling me why that was such a, a bad choice of the character. But other than that, there's other things that it does very well. The character of Griffith, the character of Guts, this kind of relationship they have is very interesting. So I would recommend it with major reservations and major content warnings. But I do think if you want a kind of dark, messed up fantasy story that's serious, Berserk is about as good as it gets in anime, in my experience. That's my take. All right. Uh, actually, you know what, Will, um, just reminded me, um, Last Valley, the score was done by uh, John Barry. I believe he did James Bond, didn't he? And like, oh, yeah. Bunch of he did classic. a lot of James Bonds, and um, he was involved in the creation of the James Bond theme, although he and John Norman, I believe the name is, have long disputed who actually created the theme. Let me just check to get that, that name. Yeah, Monty Norman, my mistake. But he did the orchestration of it that's best known, and he did all the other incidental music of the early Bond films. So uh, he was very much a defining musical voice for those movies. Well, uh, as a point of trivia, the opening theme song in Last Valley, there's a bit that's sung in German. Apparently, it's um, the lyrics are from a poem written during the Thirty Years' War by someone who actually was living through it at the time. 
And it's pretty much what you'd expect of a poem running during that time. They're all, the towers are burned, the virgins are raped, and so on and so forth. Great time to be alive. <laughs> but we do have another episode coming up, which is a bit lighter than this one. And we're uh, yes. let everyone know. <laughs> but, okay, so we're taking a hard right turn away from war and guts and gore. And we are going to be watching The Secret World of Arietti, the uh, Studio Ghibli film that came out in 2010. And we will be putting that against the original Borrower's book written in 1956 that the movie was based on. Okay, well, good time with y'all, and see y'all next time. Yes. Goodbye.